You're listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Welcome to MND Matters, brought to you by the MND Association and sponsored by Toyota GP and Toyota Financial Services. My name is Chris James and I'm Director of External Affairs at the MND Association. This podcast is about the subject of continuing healthcare, or CHC, as it's probably better known. And what we're hoping to do with this podcast is to ensure that people can have a better understanding of CHC and how they might be able to access it and understand some of the positive impact of having a CHC package. We'll also be exploring the difficulties people often face during their assessment and the review review process and indeed where they can turn for more information and support. And we'll also talk a bit about what the M&D Association uh, can do to support them in the process of trying to access CHC. I'm really pleased to be uh, joined by uh, a number of guests today to talk about this issue. Um, Firstly, we have Dan, uh, Dan Harbour, who is Managing Director of Beacon CHC, which is a social enterprise providing support and information for people accessing CHC. They offer free advice with their specialists as well as a paid service for additional support as needed. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much, Chris. Good to be with you today. Thank you. I'm also joined uh, by Dave Setters. Uh, Dave is living with MND and amongst many things, uh, campaigns for better services for people with living with MND and their families and has a specific, a very specific interest in CHC and getting better access for people um, to to make sure that they can they can get the positive benefits from it. And I'm also joined by Marion Ward. Uh, Marion's husband sadly died with MND in June. 2022 and she'll be talking about their experiences experience in accessing CHC from uh, from her perspective as a carer. Uh, So welcome Dave. Uh, Good morning Chris and good morning to all the rest of the panellists and the audience. Thanks. (laughs) And welcome Marion. Good morning. Welcome to everyone. So maybe if we could start, Dan, if I can come to you first, um, I think one of the uh, issues with continuing in healthcare uh, and CHC is that um, there's perhaps a lack of understanding of what it is. Um, And I wonder if you could start as much as possible in layman's terms by telling us what CHC actually is. Yes, it's a bit of a misunderstood uh, subject, continuing healthcare. So I'll I'll do my best. Um, well, continuing healthcare to give you the the, the 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 layman's technical spiel, if you like, it's a name given to a package of care which is arranged and funded by the NHS for people who have a primary health need. And actually, there's the eligibility criteria: the primary health need. Uh, it's for people who have a primary health need as a result of an accident, illness or disability. So, for example, that could be somebody suffering with um, Alzheimer's disease, um, having had a stroke, uh, an acquired brain injury, a learning disability or indeed motor neuron disease. Um, and where that person has significant ongoing care needs. Now, one of the important things here is that this is not about the diagnosis itself eligibility for continuing healthcare has to be based purely on your care needs only and it can be delivered in any setting outside of hospital there's another thing there's another myth myth that we need to bust so uh, if you are eligible for continuing healthcare that can be delivered in your own home or it can be in a nursing home or it can be in a non-nursing residential home 
and effectively it means that the NHS are responsible for uh, 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 commissioning and funding the full cost of your assessed health and social care needs. That's interesting you mentioned social care actually in 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 that and um, uh, I think one thing that confuses people sometimes is how does uh, CHC which is NHS provided differ from social care? Um, so nursing care in this country is provided free at the point of delivery uh, so those who are eligible for continuing health care should have the full cost of their care uh, health and social care and residential accommodation paid for by the NHS whereas social care is of course means tested and if we look at the average cost of care in this country we're looking at any anything between 50,000 70,000 pounds a year it's a lot of money uh, continuing health care is is therefore the difference between paying nothing it's effectively free care um, or potentially selling the family home to fund almost everything if you mm. were to go into residential care. Yeah. So significant, significant differences there. There are some other differences just to, to, to be aware of. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, that there is no requirement for a contribution from your pension or from your savings if you're eligible for continuing health care and also top ups, third party top ups to top up your care that is strictly not permissible in continuing health care, whereas it may be permissible in certain circumstances in social care. Mm, excellent. Thank you. That's very interesting. And, and just a final question. I'm going to move on to Dave and Marion in a moment, talk about their experiences. Uh, this might be quite a broad question, but how do people generally access CHC? What's the what's the process by which they'd know if there is a normal way of doing it? <laughs> <laughs> well, in theory, there should be a normal way of doing it. Um, for most people, there will be a two stage assessment process and that starts with a screening process. And with the screening, we use a fairly simple tool called the checklist. And the checklist divides your care needs into a number of categories or, or care domains. Um, and your needs are uh, assessed with a pretty quick and simple checklist um, uh, to, to, to work out whether they are a sufficient level of com uh, complexity or intensity um, or, or significance to go on um, and be assessed using the, 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 um, the full assessment process. So if you meet the checklist criteria, you should then go on to a full multidisciplinary assessment of your needs, um, uh, which takes which is a much more in-depth process and takes a little while. Um, that multidisciplinary assessment should result in a recommendation which is made to the uh, integrated care board. Integrated care boards are responsible for continuing healthcare now and the integrated care board should then make a decision based on that multidisciplinary team's recommendation to start the process to access it. That checklist screening right at the beginning that can be completed by any health or social care professional who has been trained to do so. So we would recommend that people, uh, if you feel you may have a need for continuing healthcare, you have significant ongoing needs, or you're going into nursing residential care, uh, that you speak with uh, your social worker or your GP uh, or district nurse. If you're struggling to get an assessment completed, contact your local integrated care board. They are responsible. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thanks very much, Dan. That's a really, really nice, comprehensive um, explanation of, of how CHC works and, and what it is. So thank you very much for that. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm going to move on to Dave and Marion now to talk a little bit about your own personal experiences of accessing CHC. Um, Dave, can I can I start with you and, and really just sort of gauge um, 
how you went through the process and uh, you know what 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 did you face going through that process yeah no, no problem at all so uh, I read up on stuff a lot of it from the beacon website and but also various other websites MNDA included of course so I, I thought I was pretty well you know researched um, and and you know I knew the process as you know as best I could from reading and also from chatting to especially my uh, occupational therapist um, at the time. Um, but despite all that, I did find it a little bit uh, labyrinthine and difficult to understand and navigate. Um, also, there was this feeling, despite the fact that, you know, I understood, you know, I understood to a large degree this term, you need a primary health care need. Um, it always felt from talking to people, even the most friendly of my social care professional, my health and social care professionals, it always felt I wasn't bad enough, despite the fact, for example, I couldn't use my arms and hands. So, so for example, you know, I couldn't feed, uh, I couldn't take my drugs. Mm. So, blimey, surely, you know, in my head, surely mm. that must qualify, mustn't it? Because, you know, if eating isn't a primary healthcare need, I don't know what is, you know. Mm. Um, that was very, very basic. Um, and, and there was that sort of general feeling in the professionals around me that I wasn't bad enough, even, you know, even though I can't live without 24-7 care from my uh, wife, Helen. Um, and sure, you know, and then we, but we did start on the, um, you know, the checklist and I, I got through it, first of all, in 2019. And um, we went on to the, the full um, decision support tool process. That was quite a heavy meet, you know, heavy meeting. And mm. I thought we'd done reasonably well. But sure enough, uh, on first application, we weren't granted CHC funding uh, at the first attempt. I did have a look at the papers that arrived afterwards and learned a bit more about, you know, how they rated me and that, that kind of thing. But approximately two years later, this time, um, I think supported, this is an important point, supported by a specialist MND nurse practitioner, um, we reapplied and we gathered even more evidence from other health and social care professionals. Um, I also spoke with fellow patients, uh, you know, I, I did my own kind of research with my peers to find out what they, what how they've done it. I also remember sitting at a face-to-face -face campaigning meeting in London where a carer from up north said to me, Dave, why aren't you getting CHC? My wife does. Um, anyway, mm. you know, I know it does vary as a postcode lottery from place to place, but that really sort of reinvigorated me to go again to, to see if we could get it. So I made sure that the specialist nurse was present at the, um, you know, the full assessment. The assessment was grueling. It took around three hours mm. and it seemed to me, you know, I'm a fairly confident guy, Helen was there, but it seemed to me you had to share the most intimate details of your physical and mental health, mm. you know, talking about toileting. We were talking about the strain, you know, <laughs> don't overdo it, but the strain, because I have to ask for everything, you know, I can't use my hands, I can't scratch yeah. my nose the strain on our relationship you know because if i ask for everything you know it, it's a bit difficult for the wife to do everything vice versa that makes me stop asking for everything and therefore feel uncomfortable or whatever 
So it was really, you know, that unloading of our, of all our full secrets. It was really grueling. Um, but we persisted and we were successful on this, on this occasion. I believe the key factors were, as I've already said, the support of our specialist nurse, along with the research, that the, the greater research that that inspired in advance. But also, were, but also, I believe a key thing was the fact that by now I'd started on at least overnight non-invasive ventilation. And this does seem okay. to, to be a little bit of a key. And yeah. that's probably, you know, my, you know where, where we're up to right now. And we, we are mm. now in receipt of CHC funding, Chris. Right. OK, thank you. That's really thank, thank you for sharing that, Davis. It's um, really interesting. And it's interesting you talk about the uh, non-invasive ventilation actually being perhaps a key factor within it. Uh, maybe explore that a bit in a, in a bit later. Um, Marion, could I come to you and, and um, ask you to talk about your experience um, uh, as a family with, with your husband trying to access CHC? Uh, yes, well, it, um, he didn't. We didn't actually make a formal application, even though um, probably about eight months before he died, um, we we felt that he met the criteria. Mm. Uh, but we had heard of other people who'd had bad experiences in making the application, uh, the grueling um, application process, the being refused once or twice, uh, quite distressed distressing so we were reluctant to go forward and apply for it and I think also we were trying to uh, manage as best we could and we were reluctant to sort of uh, feel that you know we got to that point um, and then we started to uh, uh, employ uh, private carers Mm. And then over uh, the Christmas period, the agency just couldn't supply anybody at all. And we were really, really struggling. And then we got referred to the palliative care team at the local hospital. And uh, then within a matter of days, we were fast tracked for CHC funding, um, which was good that we got we got the carers in very quickly and we were lucky enough to get carers from the hospice but we never had a formal assessment mm. we never had a package it was just all ad hoc sort of day to day they'd come once a day twice a day three times a day and then they come in the night if we needed them so it just increased like that um, and the one thing I felt was because I was caring for Ken 24 hours a day um, if I hadn't have been there, they would have had to fund uh, a carer for 24 hours a day. Mm. But because I was there, um, they didn't. And I, I, can, I want to care for him, but I need a break. Mm. So can I have, say, four or five hours in one block once a week? I, I, approach, I think I questioned it with MND Connect, whether or not as part of CHC funding, I will be able to get a carer's break um, and they said they didn't think so. We did get carer's breaks but they were fun they were from the local hospice which meant they were charity funded so they weren't funded as part of the CHD. Right. Um, and the other thing about having um, uh, the package from the hospice is we didn't know what was going to happen um, when Ken's position got such that we needed 24-hour care mm. we needed people coming in because I couldn't do it single-handed 
So in summary, really, I think um, if we hadn't heard that the process was so grueling, we probably would have applied for it sooner and probably would have got it sooner as well. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Dan, can I ask you about that? I mean, obviously, uh, one of the things we want to do with this podcast is to really encourage people to, to yeah. you know, apply for CHC in it. And we'll talk about some of the advantages of it in a moment. But both Dave and Marion have both used the word grueling. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, is, I, I just wondered how, yeah, if that if that is a common experience of, uh, of people going through the process and what and perhaps it being a barrier to CHC. Do you know what, Chris? Um, I, I'm sitting here listening to Dave and Marion's experience, and and I think they've said some incredibly important things, um, which really resonate with the experiences that uh, that we have, and that many people, thousands of families, have reported to us. Is it a grueling experience? I, I'm afraid it can be. It's sort of built into the system, if you like. Um, the, the 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 distinction between whether somebody has a primary health need or not really goes all the way back to the founding principles of the NHS and the welfare state in the 1940s. Mm. I'm not going to yeah. get into that, but, you know, there is a very, very fine line between what is primarily health and what's primarily social care. Um, and of course, social care are able to fund some health needs, provided those are merely incidental and ancillary to your social care needs. Mm. Um, so it all gets very quite confusing. Now, the only way that you can do that, bearing in mind it's such a complex set of criteria and such a fine dividing line, the only way that you can assess somebody is by going into a great deal of detail. And of course, that means a lengthy assessment process. And as Dave and Marion have both said, really going over everything, your psychological needs, your emotional needs, your health needs, your toileting needs, um, physical needs and medication, the whole lot. Um, so, you know, even your behaviour. So it can be quite an ordeal. It's something mm -hmm. that people are often not brilliantly prepared for or supported to be brilliantly prepared for. Mm -hmm. But it is so, so important. And I think one of the key messages that I would like to give, which Dave has, has, has given uh, uh, as well, is please don't be put off requesting an assessment if you feel that you may need one. Uh, there isn't enough information out there in the public domain about continuing health care. There's a lot more information now than there used to be um, five, ten years ago, but still not quite enough. And I think the, the new integrated care boards, the ICBs, mm. are playing catch up in terms of the information that they have on their websites about continuing health care. Um, but if you feel you need an assessment, please do ask one of your health or social care professionals for a continuing health care checklist because the checklist will either rule you in or rule you out and then at least you will know. Mm. It, it seem, just seems like a huge barrier where and a lot of people you know rightly or wrongly the perception is that they are that people they're being inspected if you like you know that there are people out there trying to stop them getting mm. the funding in many cases they deserve mm. so yeah it's a, it's a huge barrier um nevertheless i would yeah i would support people applying for it in fact what, if you go back one step one of the, one of the key things is that it doesn't seem that the ics is actually promote the availability of chc in the first place mm. um and and that is one of the one of the failures and you know and you can see people on our you know facebook forums people saying well what's chc then mm. you know yeah. And then and then people 
come in and they often say, please go for it, but be prepared for a fight. Yeah. And of course, with MND, particularly, you know, I'm lucky to be a slow progressor um, up to now. But for many people, when it's fast progressing, you know, you don't want me to be fighting for something when you, you might not, you haven't got much time left. Mm. Thank you. That's very helpful. And I, I, I think um, uh, we, we've talked about the, the barriers and the challenges for it. Um, I wonder, it, Dave, Dave and Marion, if I could ask you about kind of the benefits, I suppose, that obviously uh, there's a lot of encouragement for people to apply for it. Um, what sort of benefit at the moment, um, Dave, do you feel you're getting from from CHC? And then I'll, I'll talk to Marion a bit about how that experience worked for them. I mean, we selected a package personal to us, which effectively gives Helen some respite over a 36 hour period. She goes upstairs to sleep without having to turn in, in the middle of the night twice a week. We could actually get more hours, but we choose to you know, keep as normal as possible and use it mm -hmm. as a kind of rest. Well, you know, help for us all because, you know, I don't have to ask Helen so many things if there's other people there for 36 hours. That package, I think I've done the maths roughly right. You know, it's around about 50 grand a year for 36 hours. I have to have two overnight carers, you know, you know, depending where you are with your, you know, savings and all the rest of it. Um, it's a huge comfort to know mm. that that is being paid for. And I think that has a knock on effect with other things that, you know, we're, we, you know, Chris, that we're campaigning for, mm. you know, if you can't get the, all the support you need for a you know, housing adaptation, you know, you might not, you might think, well, I've got to pay for me care soon. But if you know the care is going to be paid for, then you mm. might put that downstairs bathroom in, you know, if you're yes. on that cusp between having, you know, if you're down to that last, what's it, 23 and a half thousand pounds or whatever, mm. that is a big comfort psychologically to know that you haven't got to pay those astronomical fees. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, you know, almost, sorry to say, it, it does feel like winning. I should say here that I think it's important to, to um, for some people, patients and carers and I, I have to remind myself um is that this is nhs funding it's yes. a lot of people think of it as a benefit and you know to us that's actually what it is but it comes out of a different um out of a different budget uh, but it's important to know that to, to know who you're fighting really yes yeah no that's a very good point actually that's a very very good point um uh, marin i know your experience was more ad hoc with your husband, but um, could, did you feel it was a benefit when you when you actually got some of the package? I think, like Dave said, it is a huge relief financially uh, to know that you've not got that worry of whether your savings will will cover uh, cover the care that you need. Um, so that was a huge a huge benefit. Um, because we'd already spent a very large chunk of our savings on adapting the house. Um, yeah. And also, um, it made it easier to get carers because the funding was, you know, the, whoever was providing the care knows that the funding's there. Um, so it was easier to get the carers in as well. Yes. Mm. Yes. And and do you think you're as as a carer? Do you think in terms of the assessment, your needs were taken into account? Um, um, I think that's where the weakness 
was. Mm. I think. Mm. Um, I mean, the care that we had was lovely. It was great. Um, but I, I, this big thing about not having a respite break um, mm. w- was very difficult. And, and uh, like Dave said, you know, it's lack of sleep, really. Mm. And mm. being able to get to appointments for myself. Um, so that, that perhaps a carer's assessment as well as part of the package, you know, when they're looking at the whole, the whole package would, would have been better. But things were definitely better once we got the CHC. Yes. Yeah. We also got the impression going through these two different processes that the local assessors were looking at Helen, you know, my carer, my wife, as being there. So therefore, my needs were taken care of. Don't worry about it. Now, that is clearly not the case, but you could feel that kind of sentiment going through them. Hmm. That's all I can say, you know. Yeah. Try to be yeah. fair to them. And Marion said it earlier, you know, the carer is allowed to go out to work, for example. Well, if I go out to work, so I leave my patient wife or husband at home, what do they do then? <laughs> They're not going to survive the day, you know. Mm. Dan, I, I just come back to you. Uh, I wondered, um, obviously, listening to Dave and Marion's experiences of accessing CHC and knowing that um, we, we talked about the, the process can be gruelling, but we've also talked about the great the benefits of it. Uh, you know, Marion and Dave have both kind of expressed um, the, the great benefit of getting CHC and the difference it makes. Uh, in terms of what Beacon does as an organisation in supporting people, how how can you help people through this process? Uh, well, we help uh, anybody in England uh, at any stage of the continuing healthcare process. It's all we do. All we do is continuing healthcare, and um, yeah. I've I've been involved in continuing healthcare advice and advocacy for for nearly twenty years now. Uh, we've supported. We launched Beacon about nine years ago, and we've we've supported fifty thousand individuals and families during that time. So we we run the national information and advice service. Um, we are uh, contracted. Uh, by the state to provide uh, in- independent specialist information and, and advice in continuing healthcare so people can access um, as much sort of tier one basic information as they need, um, but also up to 90 minutes of, of um, uh, a special time with a specialist advisor so we can look at um, advising you on the specifics of your assessment preparation or, or an mm-hmm. appeal, those sorts of things. Um, and there's also a load of information on our website. We try to keep that current and, and we have a, a set of free brochures that can um, information guides and things that can be downloaded and um, and support you with your assessment or, or your appeal. Um, so that's kind of half of what we do. The other half is is, is our casework and advocacy. So we've I've been delivering casework and advocacy at any stage of the continuing healthcare assessment or appeal process all the way through to independent mm. review and to the ombudsman for for many many years and we have a team of people who who do that now um we have to we have to charge for what we do uh, we don't charge for the free advice but we have to charge for representation and advocacy but um we're a social enterprise so we just do try to be absolutely clear and upfront about fees and um any profits are donated to charity mm. could you is there you mentioned you do you um provide the service in England. Is there a, a a similar service, do you know, provided in Wales and Northern Ireland that you're aware of? 
Uh, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, we're, we're not, not that we're aware of. Um, so the Welsh system is quite similar to the English system, um, but yeah. there are one or two notable differences. Um, we know that um, uh, Age Cymru, for example, um, the, the Age UK equivalent in Wales, uh, can advise, give people free advice on continuing healthcare, um, but we're not aware of any sort of specialist advice. Right. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Thanks very much. Um, I, obviously, I, I did want to mention that people can obviously contact the MND Connect uh, helpline that the association runs as well, and we have um, people uh, working on a local level uh, to help try and uh, people with um, CHC applications where 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 possible. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, Dave, as I have you here as a <laughs> ardent campaigner for the association, is uh, is to talk about other work that we can do in this area, which is around. I mean, obviously, we can. All, I think we're we're looking at our information provision at the moment and looking to making sure that uh, the information that we provide for people is as up to date as possible, and and people can access that, and people have awareness of CHC. So we have a role as an association to make people aware of it. There's also the campaigning side, and I think one of the frustrations a bit with chc is it's been a sort of a bit forgotten about um and there hasn't been a huge appetite to uh from organizations like the association to campaign on it i don't know if you wanted to say a little bit about that as we're, well, we're here we can cover all bases in this podcast sure. <laughs> the campaigning side and i think yeah. you can divide it into two you, you can campaign to change the current legislation nationally and you can you can campaign locally, regionally to improve the way that current legislation is applied locally. Um, at a national level, I think one of the big factors is that we do need, you know, you know, MND Association punches above its weight, but there are so many other conditions out there, you know, as uh, Dan was saying, you know, through accident condition, that could be campaigning on this, and I, my, one of my thoughts is that we must get together. This is we can't put it in the too hard to address tray. You know, this is something that it would be massive. We've got, you know, we need to get the other charities, not just neurological charities, together to try to change the national legislation. You can group with other charities at the local level as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, there are groups, certainly in Surrey. I'd love to know if there's um, others like that, uh, you know, across the um, across mm. the country, because there's certainly places we can apply pressure. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know, actually, if people listen to this podcast, they're, they're doing similar things, actually, <laughs> at a local level. It'd be, be interesting to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we've covered a huge amount of ground. Uh, I, I'm thinking we, we could begin to draw uh, to a close, but I did want to ask um, everyone if there was anything else they'd like to say. Dan, is there anything else you wanted to, to add? Um, yeah, I think just a couple of things to, to leave you with. And firstly, uh, again, just going back to the, the, the access and continuing healthcare, not everybody will be eligible for continuing healthcare, um, but currently, only around about 55,000 people at any one time are eligible. So it's a relatively small number. And as Dave quite rightly pointed out a few minutes ago, you know, that number has sadly uh, 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 fallen over the past 10 years. Um, however, if you feel that you have significant ongoing needs, if you may be going into nursing residential care, 
it is really, really important that you, you ask for a checklist and you get a checklist completed because that will hopefully give you peace of mind if it's completed correctly um, and uh, uh, and you will know whether you're progressing on to the full assessment or or or, or not. Um, the other thing that I just leave you with, and again, this is something that has been mentioned already on this podcast. Um, when it, if you do go through for the full assessment for continuing healthcare, it is absolutely crucial that the the professionals who are involved in your assessment are those professionals who are already delivering care and are familiar with your care needs. Um, and familiar with your treatment and yeah. your diagnosis. Too often assessments are carried out just by a nurse assessor and a social worker. No disrespect to them, but they've never met the individual before and they certainly don't have the specialist knowledge. The national framework, which is the policy for continuing healthcare, is clear that in order to get to an accurate assessment of needs, it is crucial that multidisciplinary team consists of those health and social care professionals who are already knowledgeable about your needs and include specialists. Right, that's a really good point, Dan. Thank you very much. That's uh, that's that's fantastic. Thank you, Dave. Is there anything you wanted to add? What Dan just said leads in very nicely. You know, if you've got a specialist MND practitioner, stroke nurse, make sure they're at the meeting. And previously, they weren't always invited. We now make sure, you know, if we know about the patient, that the MND practitioner nurse is there, and that that is all part of the preparation. One other thing that we found very useful and we think was influential was to write a care diary, very simple care diary with what, you know, I did it from right in the morning from when she takes the NIV mask off my face to then hoisting me onto the shower commode chair to pushing me into the bathroom to pushing me in the shower onto the loo, brushing my teeth. I tell you what, it, I think it went over two A4 pages. If you think of everything yeah. and that really stresses the intensity of what the carer is going through and what the patient needs. Um, and it's a really good tool, I, I think, to have in place because uh, which leads into that those three words that uh, Dan's mentioned them before intensity. Think about what is the intensity of your condition and of the workload that's on your carer. Think about the complexity. And, you know, we have anything up to 15 different therapists looking after us. And then the unpredictability, you, you know how I'm unpredictable. Those are three really crucial words. And if you can show that at the uh, decision support to assessment, you're probably well on the way to proving your case. Thank you, Doug. Those are, those are some top tips there at the end of the top podcast. Tip. Top tips. <laughs> uh, fantastic. No, thank you. They're all really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you say, I think they, that all those things will, will help make a difference because I think what's been interesting about this podcast is we've talked about the challenges of application and and that being something that may put people off applying for CHC but I think also what we've covered is that the great advantage of actually having CHC makes a huge difference in a in a number of different ways for people uh, with motor neuron disease and for their carers and their families and so it is definitely worth trying for CHC to to see if you can get that package because it will make a, a huge difference and I think as we've heard um, uh, through Dan's work with Beacon and through the M&D Association that that support is is there to try and help people do it and through um, obviously the specialist M&D care centres as well people who really know about your disease and how it's progressing and and the things that you need so that's that's hugely important um, so I uh, 
I just want to thank everyone. Dan, thank you for your expertise on CHC, that you've guided us through very nicely uh, the complexities of this, and um, that, that was really helpful. Thank you for, for your advice and uh, words, which I th I'm sure people will find useful. And obviously to Dave and Marion, thank you for sharing your own experiences. Uh, we really appreciate that. I mean, it's it's um, sometimes hard to talk about your own personal experience of these things, I know, and you've been very honest and uh, very open about how it was for you in terms of getting CHC. So thank you very much for your contribution. It's, um, it's been fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And um, obviously, um, if people want more information about CHC, then obviously there's Beacon um, uh, that you can go to for more information, but also to the MD Association as well. Um, so thank you all very much for your contributions. And thank you, everybody who's um, listening to this podcast. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Find more information at mndassociation.org. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, contact our helpline MND Connect on 0808 802 6262 or email mndconnect at mndassociation.org.